Hi, this is Arnie Arneson. Welcome to Race Class with Boston University Law Professor Jonathan Feingold, our year-long look at critical race theory. Twice a month during the summer, we've been doing a race class. Normally, we do it just once a month, but because there's so much to talk about, especially as it relates to affirmative action, we decided to take two bites at the apple. You know the drill, but for those of you who are just tuning into race class, let me remind you why we've decided to do this. Legislation restricting the teaching of race and racism in public schools and government entities has spread across the country. In an effort to respond, Boston University Law Professor Jonathan Feingold and me, Arnie Arneson, are offering race class. We teach it once a month. It's a course in conversation where listeners can hear what it's like to approach race and racism from a place of curiosity and history rather than fear and anxiety. As Jonathan Feingold notes, we know race matters. Part of this project is to make sense of what that means. So Jonathan, I wanna welcome you back to your class, race class. And again, this is episode seven, part A. We've been discussing affirmative action. We've been sort of dissecting it in sort of three different chunks, but now we are at a place where we're discussing race matters before admissions. We've been looking at the admissions policy of Harvard and now UNC. And of course, this is going before the is going before the United States Supreme Court, which you know has incredible conservative bias, and we're probably saying au revoir to affirmative action. But for a lot of us, I don't think we clearly understood affirmative action. We think we did, but we didn't. And because as a result of race class, you have taught us so much. But now we're at a place where we're looking at race. Does race matter before admissions? The vestiges of de jure segregation. So let me welcome you back to your class and remind everyone exactly why we are doing this in sort of three big chunks and why it's important now for us to sort of look at the before admissions process as we list as we looked at during admissions and actually after thanks arnie as always i am very glad to be here with you and i consider this our class even though we come from it from some different vantage points perhaps and Yeah, so let me situate everyone, whether you've been with us or whether you're just tuning in now. So as you may know, the Supreme Court is going to be hearing two cases that will determine the future of affirmative action in higher education. And I think it's quite clear what the outcome will be. Our goal here is, you know, not to talk really specifically about the court, but rather to better understand what affirmative action is. And the way that we've been doing so is by talking about and unpacking the ways that race matters, that race shapes experience systems, all sorts of things without affirmative action. And so the question is, well, when we no longer have affirmative action uh, in university admissions, does that mean race no longer matters? Of course not. It matters in all sorts of ways. And so we're trying to understand um, what that looks like. The last two months we've asked, well, how does race in a purportedly colorblind admission scheme operate during the admissions process? And then, you know, how um, how does it operate after? This month in today's episode, in a couple of weeks, we're asking, how does race matter 
before admissions. And one reason, you know, I'm so excited about this conversation is that in two weeks, we'll be bringing in Professor and historian William Sturkey, who's um, at the University of North Carolina, and he's going to be able to help us add so much texture to the foundation that we lay today. So I'll get into a little bit more, but first, Arnie, just a couple sort of questions for you that I think can set our intention for this race class. Does the past shape the present? Question one. Of course. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah. Of course. Like that. It's a it's a softball to start. Yes. Um, so second question, should today's policies take into account that past? How can it not? Because it informs the present. Of course it does, yes. Okay, and so then what happens if we don't know our history? We make the wrong choices. We make the wrong decisions. We don't understand what has not only happened in the past, but why the current state of affairs exists as it does. And it's not because people have made bad choices. It's because the history has basically set them up to fail. Or maybe we don't even know the right question to ask. If we don't know the past, you know, like, what is the problem that we're trying that we need to be solving? Uh, and so today we're going to be talking about how race matters before admissions. And we could have this conversation in a few different ways. One way could be focusing on just individuals. You know, before the moment of admission, students go through 20 odd years of their lives. And so a question that we might ask is, how did an individual person's race affect or racial identity affect that trajectory? Was it a headwind that they were constantly having to overcome? Or was it a tailwind that was just a conveyor belt propelling them forward? Now, that's a sort of conversation at the level of the individual, and it's not the conversation that we're going to have today, though it's an important one. We're going to be talking about the institution. So a place like Harvard or a place like the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, what is that institution's specific history of racial exclusion or inclusion? And if there's a history of exclusion, then at least one question that I often want to ask is, well, has that history been remedies? Has it been rectified? Have we, you know, quote unquote, uh, reckoned with it? Uh, and, and that's where we're headed today. And I'm going to start before we take a closer look at University of North Carolina or UNC with a quick question and then a little story. And so the question is, and Arnie, I think you know the answer, but I'll still pose the question to you. So we know that there's live litigation now uh, where there's a party that's trying to eliminate, trying to prohibit both Harvard and UNC and every other university from ever considering an applicant's race. In these cases, has either party brought up either Harvard or UNC's history of exclusion? God, no. So actually, <laughs> yes, there is. So it, it wasn't Harvard um, and it wasn't UNC, uh, but the plaintiff. Why would Harvard bring up their history of exclusion? It would just basically show their vulnerability. Why would UNC bring up their history of exclusion? Why would they do that? But obviously the parties that are challenging this are going to actually say, of course, take a look at where they've been. Well, so and so this is a really interesting point, because as you say, like, why would an institution foreground all the ways in which it engaged in racial exclusion? You know, the flip side of that is, well, if you want to buttress the case for why today you need affirmative action, it's in part due to that history. 
And so for us, when we're trying to understand, well, what is affirmative action doing? Can't actually understand it unless you know the history. But as you said, neither Harvard or UNC are trying to bring up that history, but there are third parties, student interveners on both campuses that have been trying to get into these cases to tell that story because they know that you cannot understand why it's important to account for race unless we can understand how today's um, experience on both those campuses remains shaped by the past. One, the one party is, the party suing Harvard and UNC has brought up a history of anti-Semitism at Harvard. And the question is why? It's an ugly part of Harvard's past. And this party, the party that's trying to end affirmative action, essentially using this ugly history to buttress this narrative of anti-Asian bias and to stigmatize affirmative action. In a lot of ways, it's a bad faith argument, not because the history is not accurate, but because of the way in which it's being mobilized, but it does trade on a basic logic. And that basic logic is the past matters. If we want to understand how race operates today, how institutions operate today, then, you know, logically we should ask, well, what were they doing in the past? And so that's what's going to bring us to UNC. And so I'm just going to offer the, you know, the takeaway, the upshot for UNC's history of racial exclusion. And then we'll get into, you know, some of the details and we'll work chronologically from 1789 when UNC was founded to today. So the broad upshot, UNC is a post quote unquote whites only institution. And in the history of its existence, most of that time it was formally whites only, formally racially exclusive. But in the years since, and we'll get into this in more detail, UNC as an institution has expended more resources to resist integrating than it has to overcome that history. And so then how does affirmative action play? And well, affirmative action, at least as you know, I think about it, offers a rather modest but incomplete tool that among many other things helps UNC move closer to rectifying that past. But let's, you know, let's just get into some facts. And for anyone who wants a really deep dive into this. So we'll have Professor Sturkey in a, in a couple of weeks, but I would also recommend a book um, by uh, Gita Kapoor called To Drink from the Well, The Struggle for Racial Equality at the Nation's Oldest Public University, a book that I have here with me that is documents the University of North Carolina's history and inability to free itself from a commitment to racial exclusion. Okay, so Arnie, so, uh, some pop quizzes for you. UNC, it's our nation's oldest public university, founded in 1789. Who, like in 1789, who were the decision makers? Like who was this, the group of people who controlled the university, who made all the decisions related to institutional governance? You know, roughly, how would you characterize them? Well, you know, it's interesting, again, because I would, I, I would not even think to ask the question, uh, I don't know the history, but the answer is not surprising. 40 white men with lifetime appointments as trustees, at least 30 slaveholders, some of them the largest slaveholders in the state. Uh, duh. <laughs> yeah, like, and so, oh my God. so in a sense, you know, you're thinking about North Carolina, 1789, 
you know, we never asked the question, but okay. So when UNC is founded, that's who's at the helm. Question B, so UNC doesn't just exist, you know, in space, it actually exists on land. Where did the land come from to settle this campus? God, the Cherokee Indians. Oh, this, this story is making me kill. Part of the Hop Hopwell Treaty that was never respected. So, yeah, so again, so they stole the land from the Indians and it was controlled. The trustees were the largest slaveholders in North Carolina. What else do we need to know? And so, you know, this is part of a broader history of the federal government in different ways, appropriating land, often through violence, often through coercion, um, but then also entering like legal treaties with Indigenous Americans and including the Topol Treaty, uh, which the University of North Carolina did not respect it. And a court ultimately authorized UNC's ability to appropriate uh, this land in different sorts of ways. Now question, pop quiz number C, just so 1789 founding, what was a primary way that the university raised capital in its early years, raised money to do stuff like build buildings? They sold enslaved humans. Yeah. So, and this, oh my God. This, should, this should not surprise anyone yeah. who's even listened to one episode of the 1619 um, project, but the largest market in the early years of this country was a, a market in enslaved human beings. Um, and that was a way that, you know, most industries were able to raise capital. Okay. So that's 1789. We're now going to jump way ahead to so that's sort of the founding. Now we're going to get to the decades before Brown v. Board of Education. UNC is still formally a white supremacist institution on paper. Like this is not just me characterizing. This is sort of how it would self-describe. Uh, one component of that is that it racially excludes non-white students. Now in the 1930s and 40s, and this is just another part of history that's not well known, the NAACP was already invested in a series of litigation challenging segregation that was being beginning to chip away at segregation and the notorious separate but equal standard. Now, some of those victories led UNC to engage in um, certain institutional practices in order to maintain segregation. And one was in 1939, UNC opened an all black law school for the specific purpose of avoiding a man, a legal mandate it otherwise would have had to integrate its flagship law school. So it's actually creating new law schools to avoid integration. So that's the end of the 1930s. 1951 is the first year that the Supreme Court of the United States intervenes with respect to UNC in particular and requires it to stop prohibiting black students from its law school and its school of medicine. So this is 1951. And so my question to you, Arnie, you know, do you think that UNC sort of in this moment, you know, met this decision with open arms, you know, was it ambivalent, you know, from the top down institutional leadership, what was the reaction to the Supreme Court saying, you may no longer prohibit black students from joining your law school and medical school. So I just want you to hear the quote from the university's vice president. The blacks are aboard, but we don't have to associate with them any more than we do with other people about us. Or from the AG's team, 
We shall fight the NAACP county by county, city by city, and if need be school by school and classroom by classroom to preserve our public schools as long as possible. We shall not surrender. I it's open it's, it's that latter quote from I Beverly Lake, a member of the AG's team in North Carolina, the attorney general's team that was defending the institution of uh, racial segregation and subsequently became a North Carolina Supreme Court justice. So that's 1951. 1954 is the year we have Brown v. Board of Education, where the sort of top line holding is public schools may not prohibit students on the basis of their race. Now, Arnie, some math. It's 1954. How many years since UNC was founded? About, you know, you can round to a um, round number. Well, from how many years? 1789 to 1954. Do the math. It's Do the math. Yeah, exactly. About 165 years oh, that's, um, that's since right. the, the founding uh, of the university, and we get to Brown. Now, it is important to note that racial segregation was never just about physical separation or hoarding resources. A primary sort of purpose was to communicate a clear message about racial hierarchy about who is on top and who is on bottom. And segregated schools were one way to do that. Now, UNC, as we'll see in a second, was not alone in its resistance to Brown. The entire you know, post-Confederate South, in many ways, actively resisted Brown. And one uh, example of that comes in the form of the Southern Manifesto, which is a document that over 100 Southern lawmakers signed that among other things, characterized Brown v. Board of Education as a quote unquote, clear judicial abuse of power and encourage Southern states to resist. All right, so this is 1954. So now we are in, we're after Brown, we're post-Brown. Question, Arnie, does UNC immediately integrate its undergrad campus now that the Supreme Court has spoken? Well, it's interesting. You uh, quote from a North Carolina judge in 1960 who issues something at the, at the Chapel Hill Weekly, and you write, the choice is not between segregation and integration. It's between some integration and total integration. Token integration will save the state and save the schools. This is moderation. I.e., let's knuckle drag. I mean, it's almost like it's like mo moderation means if we give us, we'll give you two blacks. There we go. We've integrated. I mean, that's all we care about. And that's going to be their definition of moderation. It was it's just a shocking statement by this judge. This was a strategic approach to resistance, and it was understood as, as moderation, both in rhetoric and actions. And it, the goal was, well, if you can achieve token representation, then we can maybe we can get the feds off our back, as opposed to some other states that were just aggressively refusing um, to comply. All right, so you know this is what I would think of as UNC's quote unquote, make me integrate strategy. And we can look at it by the numbers now. Arnie, what was the total enrollment of black undergrads at UNC from 1789 to 1954? A whopping goose egg, zero. Yeah, zero, of course. Like if anyone's been following along, um, that was the point uh, of racial segregation. 1955, we get our first three uh, undergrads. Did UNC actually formally desegregate? Uh, you would just have to look to a state, a 1955 statement from the Board of Trustees, in which they um, say, among any things, that it is hereby declared to be the policy of the Board of Trustees that applicants of 
from black students to the undergraduate schools of, and I'm sort of paraphrasing UNC, be not accepted. Now, around the same time, you also had this organization called the Patriots of North Carolina, who's you know comprised of a whole number of folks, including multiple trustees. One of their you know self-proclaimed goals was to quote unquote maintain the purity and culture of the white race and of Anglo-Saxon institutions. Let me just stop you here. We just spoke about the CPAC event in the first half of our show, which people will go back to at some point in time. And if I read the statement to maintain the purity and culture of the white race and of Anglo-Saxon institutions, that could have been a statement that came out of CPAC in 2022. I just want to let people to know we haven't moved very far from that statement, but keep going. Okay, so now it's 1956. UNC finally formally desegregates its undergrad campuses, in part because the US Supreme Court said that it had to, and said that, no, you actually do have to comply with Brown. UNC had said, we don't have to comply with Brown. We've got some reasons why. The Supreme Court affirming the Fourth Circuit uh, said, no, you should have read Brown, and then you would know that you have to comply. And just another footnote here. The degree of resistance to desegregation following Brown v. Board of Education cannot be understated. And I think it's really helpful for us to contrast that with, well, what are states doing now who might earnestly want to protect the bodily autonomy of people who bear children, notwithstanding a Supreme Court decision that says that that is no longer constitutionally protected? Now, Throughout our history, there has been, and I just think this is an example of it, and so I'm trying to mark it, just a gap with respect to commitments from sort of the broad left and the broad right. Following Brown, the South said no. They said, you must bring the army here and force us to do this. You know, when affirmative action falls, I don't think Harvard is going to say, hey, Supreme Court, you're gonna have to bring the army here to force us to stop taking race into account. Okay, so now we're gonna jump ahead a little bit. Uh, So 1958, you had seven black students enrolled in UNC's undergrad population out of almost 5,000 students, 0.14% of the entire student body. Now 1969, jumping ahead a little bit, this is after the Civil Rights Act, which was passed in 1964, which was an Congress was trying to intervene to create more leverage to ensure that Brown could actually be effectuated. And so violation of the 1960 um, of Title VI, part of that act, could mean the loss of federal funds. You know, five years later, you still only you have less than 150 black undergrads, less than 1.5 percent of UNC's undergrad campus. Okay, so also in 1969. And I know we're running out of time, so I'm going to speed up just a little bit. Nixon's Department of Education. So, you know, Nixon, his Department of Education uh, sends a demand letter to 10 post-Confederate states saying, you know, it's been 15 years since Brown, five since the Civil Rights Act. Now you actually have to comply. Uh, And if you don't, it will be a violation of Title VI. How does UNC respond? You know, as it has, by essentially ignoring it, but it um, fights it. Uh, and this leads to a decades long plus of litigation. By 1979, the Carter administration now says, UNC, you've been actively resisting meaningful desegregation. So we are going to terminate $90 million in federal funding because 
you're blatantly not complying with Title VI. That fight ends in 1981. Mm -hmm. It ends under a new presidential administration, Reagan's, one that is far more sympathetic to segregationists, just as a, a factual matter. And how does this decade of litigation get tied up? Reagan's Department of Education enters a settlement with UNC that happened to have been negotiated sort of in a backroom deal with Jesse Helms, uh, who's himself a longtime segregationist. Who's unhappy? The stakeholders that were pushing for UNC to desegregate for the past 25 years since Brown. One statement from Elliot Lichtman, who was an NAACP attorney, characterized this agreement as a triple end around federal courts in Washington, civil rights laws, and the Constitution. So let's get just back to the numbers and we'll do a little bit of math to tie this up. By 1998, 11% of UNC's undergraduate student body uh, were black students. It's the peak from what I can tell of sort of um, percentage of the student body. It's, you know, I guess not terrible, but it's way underrepresented when you have a state that is 20% black. And then you saw essentially um, from then some steady, sort of stayed steady until 2004, then you had sort of a decline, both in the overall and relative uh, percentage of black students on campus, uh, sort of leading up to 2014 when litigation was filed, challenging UNC's ability to engage in affirmative action. All right, so we've got a minute left. Let's do the math. How many years of formal racial exclusion from the founding to the Supreme Court intervention in 1956? I, I think this number's off. It's around 167 years. How many years of actively resisting desegregation? 25. Until Reagan administration says, now, now we're cool. Do your thing. Now it's been about 40 years since then. And so the question is, was there a shift, like a top, a, some top-down commitment to reckon with this history that has occurred since 1981 that somehow is responsive to this history? And if you just look at recent events, the answer is no. We don't have time to get into that because I can see that we are out of time. But you know, at least for me, to try to understand what affirmative action is and why it's necessary, at a minimum, we have to understand what the institution here, UNC, what its relationship to race and racial exclusion and inclusion has been, you know, up until now. And so far from affirmative action being some sort of overreach, looks like the most modest and insufficient effort to reckon with a history that we've only begun to dance around. We're going to fill in the gaps uh, in our next conversation about affirmative action with uh, Professor Starkey. So I'm just really grateful that you're bringing him in. The story of critical race theory is a story of history and math. It's a story of history and math. If you know the history, you're shocked. When you do the math, you're appalled. And then you ask the question, so what is affirmative action actually accomplished? Not exactly terribly much, because why? So many states have basically been sort of trying to do anything but embracing it, but doing an end run around it. Thank you, Jonathan Feingold, for doing this. This is Race Class. It is a class about critical race theory we've been offering since January. All you folks that you own my life You never made me sacrifice Demons there on my trail 